And he just came and sat with me and he just said, I've seen something in your heart scan. Um, we need to, you know, get things checked and, you know, get various opinions on it. But he said, if I've seen what I've seen and I think what it is, um, it could have some some serious implications on your career. We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becky, you're well placed. There's a thread that unifies millions of boys who grew up in England. It has for decades, almost centuries now even. That thread is a dream. You know, the main, I think the main goal was to become a professional footballer and to do this for a job. I think in, in school and things like that, people would say, what do you want to be when you're older? And I think every kid in the class said they wanted to be a footballer. And then they'd say, yeah, but if that doesn't work, what would you want to be? And I just didn't have anything else that I could think of or that I wanted to be. So I think the main thing for me was was making a career of it and, and having it as something that I could yeah, make a living off when I was when I was older. For Fraser Franks, the pursuit of that dream started off as strong as any young boy could hope when at just eight years old, he signed for Chelsea. Full-time whistle. Chelsea have won the Champions League. Yeah, that Chelsea. For those like me who are unfamiliar with how the pro soccer or pro football path works in England, big clubs send out scouts to watch local amateur teams to identify talent when boys are young, young lads. If they like what they see, which they did with Frazier, they sign you and these boys become what's known as schoolboys. Now back then at least, being a schoolboy meant going to regular school and then going to train at the academy. And maybe there was like one day a week where you could leave school early to go to training. It is soccer, football, whatever we call it, it is the priority. And you know, from the age of, you know, from the age of uh, I was 13, maybe even 12, you're taken out of out of class, so I would have you know a couple of afternoons where I'd be taken out of school. I would maybe have to catch that up later down the line, but you know the the priority was was playing football. Then Fraser left Chelsea and signed with another London club called Brentford when he was 17. This period, around 16 to 18, is when young pro soccer aspiring men are known as scholars. You do a, a college course, but it's a uh, you know, it's one day a week and it's very minimal work and it isn't something that's, it isn't something that is taken very seriously, if I'm, if I'm brutally honest. Um, and you could quite easily pass that without much effort and just carry on. I know so many players that in school probably didn't pay attention because they thought they were going to be professional footballers and put all their eggs in that basket. But yeah, there, there needs to be a huge culture shift um, in this country to, to place, you know, your academics and your studying up there alongside your football because, you know, the the rate of players that go for an academy and make it as a professional is, is you know, the stats are around 1%. So 99% of those others are going to need something to, you know, to fall back on or to to help them in the, in the next stage of their life. So why you would prioritise the 1% over the 99 is is something that we need to we need to try and change in this country. I set all this up 
me talking about the sort of pyramid these boys go through to show the intensity, sacrifice, and pressure that comes with this very rigid and specific path that doesn't allow for a whole lot of let me skip some trainings to explore other hobbies on the weekends. Frazier was in that 1%. He made it as a professional soccer player. He signed his first pro contract with Brentford in 2009. He was living the dream, getting paid for playing soccer, prioritizing his attention, his social life, his fitness, in the way a pro athlete is expected to prioritize these things. Yeah, I'm so curious, like thinking about the life of a professional athlete, like there's only so much you can actually put into getting better each day. Like even let's say if it's five hours, you know, like two hours on the field, you know, some weightlifting, you're getting your massages and recovery that still leaves like so much time in the day. And I know yeah. I've always wondered like, you know, are they thinking about, you know, like, are they reading books? Or are they <laughs> maybe taking that, you know, course online, learning another language, Duolingo. I mean, I don't know. Are they just watching film? Like, are you just filling that time entirely with this thing? Even if, you know, maybe you can't physically do stuff for more than a few, you know, five hours a day. Are you just filling that time with the mental? Like, is there any balance at all? Is it really kind of just vary from player to player? Yeah, it's, it's very individual, but there is a, there has been a big culture. So I would say early in my career, when I when I first came through, I probably got got sucked into this as well. But you you finish training probably the latest you'll finish is two pm, three pm, three pm at, at latest. So you go home and you've got all that time. Um, if you if you have an early day, maybe you finish at one. You know, you might be tired, so you go home and you have a little sleep and stuff like that. But it's always been seen as as almost a negative to do anything else apart from football, that it's going to be a distraction, that it's going to stop your focus, that you're going to be worried about something else when you can just be focused on football and resting. And it's just complete rubbish for me. Um, you know, there's there's players that have been criticised in the Premier League for having other businesses or starting up fashion brands or, you know, talking about politics or any kind of thing that they've gone into next. And it's seen as you know, they need to focus on their football and, and not do that. But when you actually break it down, like what does focusing on football, you know, mean? Because one person is maybe starting a business or a clothing brand and is maybe pictured out at a fashion show or something like that, maybe just, you know, taking a, a real generic example. And then his teammates just been laid on the sofa playing Call of Duty for eight hours, staring at a screen. And he's seen as focusing on football and doing the right thing and resting and this other guy seen as, you know, he doesn't really care about football. He's more into his fashion. And, you know, when things are going well on the pitch, it's not mentioned. But when once you start performing poorly, that's the first thing that a manager would blame. It's the first thing that supporters would blame. Should he be doing that? You know, he should be focusing on football. And it's just, uh, again, it's something that's so old fashioned. And yeah, you know, if maybe if you were going to have a professional career up until the day that you die at, 80 years old or whatever it might be and you're guaranteed this then yeah I'll focus everything on football because I'm guaranteed a job for life um you know I'm focusing on one thing then I go home and I've got my family but that football club isn't going to be there the day you retire 
then you're left on your own. And then it's what have I done in that time to prepare myself? And I think too often, uh, I think something that we, we get wrong here as well is all the education for this is targeted in that education period where it's between 16 and 18 year olds. So they get all the education before they've even started really. And you're trying to prepare someone for the, the end before they've even begun. When it's the players that are you know, midway through their career or to the end of their career, they need the education like then and there because they're, they're only a few years away from it, but we just leave them. So players go from 18, they get no education really, or no enforced education from a club or a league or an organization from 18 and the average professional retires at 35. So it's almost 20 years of nothing. And um, yeah, I think that's where we get it slightly wrong in this country. And again, it's, you know, there, there are certain people in the game that are that are changing that narrative and showing that you can be more than a footballer and you know there's a life outside of football and you're going to have to do this a big thing is no matter how much money you earn you need to do something after football and I think that's where there's this big illusion around if you're a famous successful footballer with lots of money you can retire at 35 and just be happy for the rest of your life when you've had this drive from the age of six years old that doesn't just switch off overnight so no matter how much money you've got in the bank, no matter what house you've got, a car you're driving, you need a purpose and something that's going to drive you and get you out of bed in the morning. So, you know, and you've got, again, I speak to players now and you finish at 35, you know, the average male lives in this country until the age of 81. So you're not even halfway through your life. So you're going to live the rest of your life being that ex-footballer and talking about, I used to be this person, I used to be a footballer, or are you going to, you know, create a new almost like a new identity for yourself and a new purpose just because there's so much life left to live. And you'll look back on that period of, you know, of your life that you were a footballer as 10 or 12 years in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a really short period of your life, but it doesn't feel like that when you're consumed in it. Frazier did have thoughts about life after soccer, but they were in the back of his head. They came up every once in a while. They were easy to push aside because he was, right then and now, consumed by living his dream. I was having the thoughts, probably from the age of about 22, 23 years old. I always had the thoughts and always had a real fear. I always feared retirement. Um, I didn't look at it as an opportunity to do something new. It signaled the end. And I think that word retirement, when you talk about it, like retirement signals like, you know, old age and it signals the end. And when you talk about sports people, it's just, it baffles me. This, it, it just makes you seem age quicker than you should. Um, so I think if we had a different word for it, it might seem less daunting, but I always, I did think about it, but I probably didn't act enough. If I'm honest, I did, um, you do coaching badges in this country and I did my coaching, my first coaching badge at the age of 24. Um, I did the course, didn't do much coaching at all, just did enough to pass the course and then put that to the side and thought, right, now I'm prepared for after football. Didn't know if I enjoyed coaching, didn't know what kind of salary it was, what kind of jobs you could get, what I needed, what else I needed to learn. I just thought, yeah, that's me prepared after football. But again, I always had the thoughts and then I'd get home and I'd worry and I'd panic and I'd go online, you know, what have other footballers gone into? Because I'm not sure I want to be a coach. Um, and then I'd probably end up spending a couple of hours thinking about it and then go, I'll, I'll leave it until next week. 
and probably did that for for quite a large period of of my career until until it it was you know forced upon me at the age of uh, at the age of 28 it was march 2019 he was 28 years old playing for newport county he sat up in the middle of the night knowing his body didn't feel right so we had we actually, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a kind of crazy one because on the, so it was a, on a Saturday evening, we had, um, uh, we played against Manchester City in the, in a cup game. So it was one of the, it was like a big TV game. We were, I was at a lower league club. Um, we got to the last 16 of that competition and played against Manchester City. And that was one of the, it was the best, best team I'd ever played against. It was always like million, millions and millions of pounds of players and Pep Guardiola and things like that. So, it went from like a real high point and we lost the game and then choose on the Tuesday. So only three days after um, we played a game back in the league and I didn't feel very good during the game. You know, my legs just didn't feel like they were working. I actually scored in the game bizarrely um, and I'm a defender, so I don't get many, um, but I had to, I had to come off the pitch. Um, I, yeah, I started not feeling great. Um, my chest felt funny. I couldn't really catch my breath. And we were winning 4-1 and there was only a you know short amount of time left. And I just went to the floor and I just felt like something wasn't right um, and then came off the pitch. And it wasn't actually until the next day that um, I was in bed. Uh, I felt like I had a, like a flu or a cold. So I didn't feel well. It felt I kept going hot and cold during the day and dizzy and stuff like that. So I took myself to bed quite early. Um, and I, my wife was yeah, heavily pregnant at the time and I didn't want to sort of disturb her in bed or anything. But I just felt my my chest was getting louder and louder and my heartbeat was, you know, increasing rapidly. And it got to got to quite late and I just said, I feel like I need to go to the hospital. Um, and then she took me there. It wasn't too far away. And they took my sort of resting heart rate and it was, I think it was something like two, 210 maybe, something like that. A normal resting heart rate is between 60 and 100 beats per minute. Um, and then, yeah, they, they saw that something was wrong, rushed me through to sepsis, uh, rushed me through to recess, um, and they thought I had sepsis at first. So they thought I had sort of blood poisoning and was trying to work out what was happening and why I was feeling how I was. Um, and then I was, yeah, put on some heavy medication and kept in hospital for around a week. Uh, and then they just did various tests in my heart um and then I remember about a week to 10 days later there was like a doctor that was um quite into his football and he just came and sat with me and he just said I've seen something in your heart scan um we need to you know get things checked and you know get various opinions on it but he said if I've seen what I've seen and I think what it is um it could have some some serious implications on your career and I think from then i for some reason I just knew that that was it and that was it over um it took another couple of weeks then to get you know various opinions but um yeah it came back after that that the the issue I have um that was too too much of a risk to carry on high intensity and, and playing and training every single day it was discovered that Fraser has an enlarged aorta and a bicuspid valve which means his valve has two flaps instead of the normal three making it difficult for the heart to pump blood into the aorta. I didn't think that I would need open heart surgery. Um, and I had to, I, the plan was to go regularly and get my get my heart scanned. Initially, it was every month, then every three months, every six months. Um, and I had one around six months ago. 
Um, and now I do, you know, it's, it's appeared that it hasn't got any better and it's got slightly worse. So I'm going to have to need, I'm going to need open heart surgery probably in the next year. Um, but yeah, that was, that was it at the age of 28, sort of, yeah, one week playing against like the, the best team I've ever played against to a week later in hospital and yeah, having to, having to come to terms with, with the fact that that was it, it was, it was all going to be over. When he was 16, a mandatory academy heart scan had shown he had an irregular heartbeat. Doctors didn't seem too concerned about it, though. They just told him to get regular scans. Other than that, there was really no warning. No red flags about any issue that could arise with the most important organ in his body. And so there he was, an otherwise healthy young man, sitting in a doctor's office being told that life as he knew it was over i think i think when i when i first initially had that conversation i was asking a lot of questions sort of what about if i do this what about if i do this um but i think the stage i was at when i I was 28 my wife was seven months pregnant that you know that was one of the first things that came into my head um you know i had my mum and my wife at the hospital and I think the main thing that I wanted was them to take it out of my hands. I didn't want it to be a choice. I didn't want them to say, look, you've got this really serious issue. We can maybe try and manage it and try and get you to do this. And maybe you can, you know, taper your training down and we can, we can monitor you and see how we go. I wanted them to say you can either hundred percent go and play risk-free or you have to retire. And I think when they took that decision out of my hands and made it for me, I think that made it a little easier. Then came the processing. I think initially there was a lot of anxiety, um, especially when I was in hospital. What was I going to do next? And yeah, I was, you know, really looking forward to becoming a dad, but that also became another pressure. It was like the only thing I'd ever done to make money was play football. Um, how am I going to pay bills? What am I going to do next? Am I prepared for this? Those questions sort of raced in my mind nonstop and I really struggled to, to, to sleep and stuff like that. Um, and then the, the couple of weeks after that, you know, my football club, I have to say, were amazing with me. And I was on a, I was on a two year contract and they said to me, look, we're going to, we're going to see this contract out. Um, so I had a year left on that contract and they said, look, so this year we, we're going to pay you for the whole contract. You don't have to worry about, you know, going and getting a job straight away. You've got, you know, I had a year where I could sort of th- figure things out. And that for me was, you know, one of the the biggest things I was, you know, probably the main thing I was thinking of at the time. Um, I think at first you come out and you are, it maybe is a little bit of a novelty. I think you, there were were periods when I played where I felt under so much pressure and I was nervous and I was, felt like, you know, you know, if you make a mistake, then it's shown on TV and everyone can see your failures when you're playing. And sometimes I was like, I'd love to just have a normal life and not put myself in this, I've seen that poem, there's a poem, The Man in the Arena, I don't know if you've seen it, and it's like being the one that, almost the one that the spotlight's on all the time you feel like, and everyone can see you in there, and it's a lot of pressure all the time, and you have to sacrifice a lot during a career, and you miss out on certain things. So I think when you initially come out of it, there's a little bit of a novelty, like, oh, actually, you know, I don't have to, I don't have a game this weekend, and I can spend time here with friends, or I can go and do this, or... I'm actually, I can relax a little here. And I think you have that sort of novelty. You can eat different foods and you can maybe drink alcohol and stuff like that. Um, 
and yeah, I think that was the the initial couple of weeks was probably a little bit of enjoyment. Um, you know, being out of that spotlight, there was still obviously the the anxiety and stuff like that about what I was going to do forward. And but if someone said to me in that probably in the first six months, like, do you do you miss do you miss playing football? Do you miss it? My answer was always no. I think a little bit of it was denial. I think I was I wanted to put on this brave face and you know pretend that I was I was absolutely fine. I think my daughter was massive in that though as well. I had an initial focus and had something that was someone that I had to look after and was constantly like keeping me present sort of thing. Um, but no, there were, I think probably, it probably had a bit more of a delayed effect on me, I'd say. Um, but at first, I, when I came out, I probably didn't deal with it. I've, I've since spoken to people and they say it's like a, almost like a grieving process. Um, and it's a loss and I didn't I didn't deal with that at all you know the ne- the day I came out of hospital I went back into almost two days after I went back into Chelsea and was like can you put me on a course can you help me I was going out and meeting people and I was speaking to everyone and doing interviews and just chuck myself into I said I wanted to say yes to every opportunity and I'm glad I did but I'm also part of me was like I didn't really deal with my feelings at that time Slowly, though, as the months went on, moments of missing playing would bubble up. We actually got to the playoff final that year at Wembley, which was like a huge game. And This huge game was to determine if Newport County would get promoted to the next highest tier of English soccer. And it was being played in maybe the most famous stadium in the world. I was there, um, you know, as like a, a guest of honour um, and seeing all my friends go out and play it like... A famous stadium and in front of thousands of fans and stuff like that parts of me then was a little bit like that should be me still out there um but I'd, I'd have small moments moments like that and then I think it was probably the next season um when you're maybe at home and you're seeing everyone go back into training and you know you're seeing people sign for different clubs and get different opportunities and stuff like that it probably started to hit me then um and then you you get you miss being around sort of the changing room team and just being around your friends all the time those kind of things and yeah probably probably a little bit later down the line that that I started getting those feelings for the first time in his life Frazier was forced to ask himself really uncomfortable questions who was he now what else was he good at it was it was my my whole identity was was football I think a lot of players that I played with they had more more of a social life. They had more going on. They could probably switch off from football a little better than I could. For me, I think where I was in it from so early on, so from the age of eight, like teachers in school called me the footballer and everyone knew that I was that kid that played for Chelsea. And every family party that I went to, the only questions I got asked, well, the initial questions I got asked were, you know, how's football going and what's the score at the weekend? And how much money are you going to make? And everything was football, football, football. Everything I watched was football. Everything I talked about. When I was 16, all my friends from school started, you know, drinking and doing, going down different paths. So I cut all of them out of my life. Didn't speak to one friend from school. All my friends became footballers. So everyone I associated myself with, I had this, this footballer identity. Every, everything about me was, every, I felt like everything about my identity was tied up in football. And it wasn't until I came out and I enrolled in a, in a university 
course about four months after uh five months after um and it was it was a it's a sporting directorship course so it was full of ex-footballers and sports people and athletes and then the first thing that they got to do was um you had to stand up and introduce yourself and you had to say something interesting about you without without talking about your sport or your family and for me that's probably I talk about that quite a lot when I speak to people because that was a moment where I thought like I was like wow is has being a footballer been like the most the only interesting thing about me has it been the the thing that has made me stand out to people has it been the thing that makes me interesting because I think when you you know when you're younger and you as I said you go to these family parties or you meet someone new maybe if they ask you what you do and you say you're a footballer automatically you become interested and you've got some they they want to talk about it and there's almost like a status to it and a bit of ego towards it as well and when that's taken away and you know you can't talk about something interesting about yourself you can't mention football and then my backup to that would be I'm a father or talk about my wife or something like that so when you can't mention either of those you have to really dig in and you're like wow like you know what's what's been interesting about me without football and it's a it's a part of you know uh, you know a part of almost self-discovery I've probably had to I've probably learned more about myself in this last two years than I have in in the previous you know 28 so it's something that I'm I really want to get across to footballers to to explore different parts of your personality and don't just don't just become the footballer because for me as well it it doesn't it doesn't help um I know there's some of the stuff I'm reading at the minute saying it gives you you know if you're tied up in that identity and football's everything and you're consumed by it it gives you that drive and it gives you that ambition and maybe separates you above other people. And maybe there's some element of truth in that. Um, it's something I'm trying to work out myself, but it also means that when times get tough, you feel it a lot worse than other people. When you're deselected, you take it home with you and you can't stop thinking about it. When you're injured, your whole world has come crashing down and it feels like the end of the world. And obviously when you retire, you think life's over. So it, you know, it may have some slight benefits, but the, the negatives 100% outweigh the, you know, the, the positives for me in, in being too, too tied up in that athletic uh, identity. The party conversations, the labels in school, the social media posts, the number on that paycheck. So much emphasis put on athletic identity in all these loud and sneaky ways. And then... You get in there and it feels like 35, which is the the average age you retire. It feels like that's like almost like a death. It's the end of the world. And it's like a ticking clock until you hit that day. And then you have to go into the real world and into a mundane job when it's never going to be as exciting as it was. And it's all downhill from there where I don't think it has to be like that if we, if we prepare people well enough. Yeah, I think it's just this matter of... Um... You, you know how good it can feel to be successful and you have this benchmark. Now, do you package that up and say, this was one experience I had and I shouldn't try to compare the next things to what my feelings were, the good and the bad and the fulfillment and everything to that? Um, should I try to compare because this felt so real? Um, or do I, again, tie it up and just pivot and try to move on and create new highs and new benchmarks mm. and not try to constantly compare it's 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 very tough I think I think, I think that's a, a real good way of putting it because I think that is what I would want what, what you try to do 
Um, I think I think we've it's, it's really relevant with the Olympics on at the moment. You know, I've seen one of our GB swimmers this morning that that won his uh, one Olympic gold and saw the family celebrations and, and things like that afterwards. He, you know, if he, I've, I think they call it gold medal syndrome or something like that. And with Olympic athletes, like he probably in that context, he's never going to get that kind of moment. Or maybe maybe he will in, in a slight, in, but it will just feel different. It won't be thousands of people jumping in their living rooms over the, all over the country and you having a big gold medal singing the national anthem. It won't be that, but you can find some like real high and real joy in other areas of your life. If you, again, if you, if you compare it to this big podium gold medal, you're going to be disappointed. But if you don't compare it to that, then, you know, you'll, you'll find a, you know, a fulfilling and happy life. It's been almost two and a half years since Frazier's last soccer game. One of the biggest adjustments he has had to make since retiring and figuring out the limits of his heart is the physical and nutrition elements of life now. So I've been, I feel like this is, it's really helped me because initially, so for the first two, three months, uh, just a real takeoff, no exercise. Let's see how this goes. Get your scans, enjoy yourself for a little bit. And for me, um, my diet was, was pretty poor. Um, I was drinking alcohol probably in the wrong way as well to, to mask feelings and to suppress things and to take myself away from my own head. So I found that if I was, maybe I had a few beers in the evening, I wouldn't think as much in my own head and that became a cycle. And that then, you know, I think there's a, there's a thing, a thing with all athletes about your body. If you if you feel good and you've been in a certain condition for your whole life, then you suddenly chuck everything out the window. Don't exercise, eat poorly, drink rubbish. You you look at yourself and you think, what have I become? Or, you know, you feel horrible about yourself. And I'm one of these people that gets huge guilt, you know, for what they eat or what they drink. And it's just been something that's been drummed into me. But after a few months I've managed, well, I was told that I could do um, sort of moderate exercise. So I go, I go to the gym every day near enough go for runs, go for bike rides. I feel like I'm, you know, I've, I need to, I need to, I don't know if it's a vanity thing or what, if it's a mental thing, but I need to be in good shape. Otherwise I feel, I feel awful. And there's this voice in my head that says, you're fat or you're going to be this. So you're going to be that, go for a run, don't eat that. And even though I've got no one to, you know, nothing to stay in shape for, I don't need to be as strict. I don't need to get up as early as I do and go to the gym, but I think a lot of athletes have got it. And if you've got that, that drive and that, you know, you've had that as part of your identity as well. You know, I, I think it really correlates with how you feel mentally. I think if you come out of a football and don't sort of keep up some kind of training or some kind of, you know, diet and lifestyle that you've, you know, that you've accustomed, been accustomed to your whole life, I think that's where you can get some, you know, some, even sort of even some more mentally damaging parts. I've seen a lot of players that have come out and have let themselves go and say, I enjoy looking like this and feeling like this and drinking what I want and eating what I want and putting on all this weight. But when you actually dig down, they, they're doing it because they're unhappy and they're doing it to as an escapism. And once you get to a certain stage a few years down the line and you've been doing it for years, it's really hard to get out of. Um, so for me, my advice to, and I get quite a few players now that reach out to me when, when they do retire, 
one of the first things I say is keep yourself going, keep yourself ticking over. You don't have to be as intense as you are as a player, but keep yourself training, keep yourself ticking over. Even if you've got, you know, you've had to retire through injury or whatever it might be, there are certain things that you can keep doing to, to make yourself feel good. And I think if you, yeah, I think, I think body image and how you feel about your body is a, is a big one for retired athletes. I told Fraser, I said, when I think of people who have heart conditions that force them to leave their sport, I think about how they can only go on walks for the rest of their life and that they have to be super careful about ever getting their heart rate up in a way that could be considered a workout. Now, everybody's situation is different, but Frazier is still very much able to exercise. The most dangerous thing he can do, though, is lift weight over his head. He recognizes that there can be a dissonance there when you look at him, know about his level of activity, and then learn he has a heart condition. That dissonance can, at best, be isolating, and at worst, be deadly. Whenever, if I've ever thought of someone with a heart condition, I've thought of someone that's maybe overweight, old, smokes, whatever it might be. And if I go into a cardiac unit when I had to get my scans and stuff, I'm the youngest one in there usually by about 30, 40 years. And it's like, you get in there and you're like, what, what am I doing in here? Like, I've spent my, my life as, as an athlete and trained and been disciplined, but, you know, I've, I've been dealt this. But once you come out of that and once they told me I was going to have the operation, the first thing that I did was try and research it or go on YouTube. And I couldn't really find anyone that was relatable for me. Um, so I, what, what I've said to the, or what the British Heart Foundation have said to me is that I'm going to, don't know when the operation date is yet, but I'm going to uh, make a documentary about it. So it's going to be, you know, what life is like before the operation, during the operation, you know, and hopefully afterwards, you know, me leading a normal, healthy lifestyle, exercising, all this kind of stuff. And just having something that, because I've, I've, I've done a, a couple of Zoom calls as a group, but there's a lot of young people that have been diagnosed with, with serious heart conditions. And it's just, I think it's just nice having a, a reference point that, you know, you can, it, it won't be the same condition for everyone, but just, you know, this big scarcity thing over a heart condition that, yeah, you might have it, but you can still operate, you know, most people anyway that, that have them can still do certain exercise or operate normally. And it's not something that's visible to everyone, um, but it's, yeah, it's something that could be managed and, you know, you can lead a normal lifestyle with, with my condition anyway, that is. Since that day in March, Frazier has changed significantly. He's fascinated by things he wouldn't have thought twice about while he was playing. His perspective has shifted with age, with being a dad, with the world-shaking knowledge that his heart didn't work like it was supposed to. He's grown to be not as scared of life without the one thing that had made him interesting since he was a lad. He's gotten more and more confident in what he needs, what his strengths as a human are as he looks towards the future. There's still a lot of uncertainty there, uh, if, if I'm honest, there's, but I see it more as a, of excitement and opportunity rather than, than dread and fear. Um, but yeah, as you say, I'm a, I'm a dad, so that takes up a, you know, a big chunk of my life and something that keeps me focused and yeah gives me that time that that I need um but things you know I'm, I'm I wish I had the attitude I had now when I was still playing so I could use it more 
you know, I, I was someone that, you know, put in everything in training and stuff like that, but I would wake up relatively late, get into training, not do much in sort of preparation wise, um, go and train, go home, not do much when I got home, that kind of thing. But now I'm, you know, I've read more books in this last two years than, than I have in my whole lifetime, probably times 10. Um, I, you know, just things like meditating and getting up and going out into, into like, it sounds like, I, I still almost find it, find it not embarrassing, but it's like when people in football have like say to me, oh, you've changed or you seem different. I'm like, yeah, I, I actually have. Like, I'm, I'm not this guy that just kicked a ball anymore. So I am like, I go, I go like into nature and I go into, you know, I'm into like cold water immersion and stuff like that. And I want to read. I want to speak to people. I want to, I do want to remain in sport and in football. Um, just because I think there was a lot that went on in my career that I would want differently for other people. Um, and I feel like I've been in a good position to see a lot of that and witness a lot of that and feel it myself. So my my big goal is to help as many people as I can in football. What, and I feel like that's what my purpose is, but what, um, in what way that is and what form that is, uh, is still very much up in the air. But at the moment I'm working, you know, I've got my own business with my business partner. We go in and we, we uh, deal with education within the academy system. And we, and we help a number of players off the pitch. We help football clubs. Um, and that's an area that's growing and growing. And I just want to, I just want to help as many players as possible. And I'm, I'm almost more relaxed now about what it looks like going forward. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, I think the only thing that I still need to improve on is being more present. Um, I still very much get caught up and I'm, you know, if I'm completely honest and when I'm speaking to trying to work in this, in this space where you talk to people that are retired from, from sport or going to retire, the thing that I struggle most with is a lot of my work at the moment is based at home maybe, or I go out and I go in and out of clubs, but a lot of it is I'm in my own head. So a lot of it, when you're in a changing room and you're surrounded by 20 people and everyone's talking, you're, you're in that moment a little bit and you can get out what's in your, what's in your head and you can talk to people. When you're at home for, you know, seven, eight hours a day, you know, working on a computer, when you've been used to being outside and stuff like that, that's what I find difficult. And that's when I find my mind running away, away with me sometimes. Um, but I think, I think that's something that I'm conscious of and that I'm working on quite a lot. Um, but I also have to maybe cut myself some slack a little bit that I've I've spent my whole career and whole life being outside, running around, and now you're confined to sitting indoors and staring at a computer. That's why I have to go out and I have to get my work done in the morning. I have to go on my walks and get my time outside. I have to take myself away. I can't be sat down for too long in the same position. But yeah, I think I still have very much up and down days and it's something that I'm doing the research, you know, selfishly as well, because there's a lot that I want help with, um, but a lot that I want to help others with as well. Thank you to Fraser Franks for coming on to the podcast and thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time.